Hey, Risto here at George Mason University. I'm here with Dr. Andrew Sprake from the University of Central Lancashire to discuss the article, Understanding the Interpretive Paradigm, a guide for sports students learning through qualitative research. Um, the art article is published in the Journal of Qualitative Research and Sports Studies, and you can find the full citation as always on the um, article notes. Um, Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Hi Risto, thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here and thanks for the invitation. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I saw this uh, article come up on Twitter and uh, I saw the, or maybe it was a Google Scholar alert, but it, it talks about these isms and ologies. And I was just telling you earlier that I found this, um, I've been working on trying to figure out how to cover this on a podcast because I think that these are the isms and ologies are these terms that oftentimes not everybody that does qualitative research actually knows and uh, gets gets pushback on these. Like for me, um, I've gotten pushback from reviewers saying like, hey, what's your ontology and epistemology here? You're not being clear about that. And frankly, I'm looking at it going, I need to go read some qualitative research books because I don't even understand what I'm writing about anymore. Um, and I think they're they're tough terms, um, but I can even understand for beginning researchers, master students or postgraduate researchers or um, people who are moving from doing quantitative research to qualitative research, they're, um, you know, terms that they need to know. So I'm, I'm wondering um, if you can start off by just telling me the background of like, why did you decide to write a paper like this? So what kind of inspired you to break down the, the terms, the way that you've, did, you've done? Sure thing, yeah. Uh, I think the, um, the paper and the motivations for writing it serve, I guess, two purposes, really. Um, the first reason was to help students, and the initial target was uh, leaning towards undergraduate students as well as master students and those who are, you know, embarking on perhaps PhD, uh, journey. So those perhaps new to qualitative research, because as you said, there are a lot of isms and ologies and, you know, uh, uh, terminologies that can be quite perplexing. Um, and in my own PhD journey, um, we've got a fantastic community of colleagues who are engaged in postgraduate research. And I began to notice that, you know, people who are uh, further ahead than me, to use a crude term in to, uh, with regards to their studies, were still grappling with these terms. And I thought, well, I need to grapple with them early on. And that proved very useful for me. Uh, and and I, I knew um, having led uh, research modules for undergraduate and master's level study that students were struggling to grapple with the, I guess, the philosophical foundations of methodology. So the first thing was to try and develop a paper that would provide students with a, a bit more confidence and clarity um, about research methodologies, but also an appreciation for the wider philosophical aspects. And one of the quotes I often share with my students quite early on in a research module is from Peter Singer's uh, Ethics in the Real World, where he stated, whatever cannot be said clearly is probably not being thought clearly either. And I think that's a re really interesting um, uh, I guess, um, proposition to grapple with early on, because we often tell our students to avoid using overly grandiose language uh, in order to, you know, uh, I think it was Nietzsche that talked about, you know, those who strive for complexity, you know, are, are, are often less wise and wiser people often strive for simplicity and trying yeah. to, you know, get your message across in more clear terms. So I often tell students to write more simply where they can. Yeah. Uh, but to grapple with these terms um, gradually as they develop their confidence. And frankly, the second reason uh, to write this paper was to put sections of my own PhD methodology chap chapter uh, to work and to use to be hopefully of benefit to others. Um, mm -hmm. And I guess the final point on that is that I wasn't quite expecting the amount of uh, emails that I received from not only students, but also staff just down the corridor, you know, colleagues who are engaging in their own PhDs have been saying how useful this is as, in terms of just giving them perhaps a structure or just some introduction to 
these um, these terms. So yeah. that's the two motives. Well, and it's it's uh, I mean, good for you for like a good citation also, right? If you want to go to a resource to explain what this is, you you provide a lot of resources, but also like to be able to cite a paper that defines these very clearly. Um, so one of the areas you talk about is methodological language. Um, can you explain what that means and which ones are important for researchers to know when they're entering higher education or this kind of research area? Yeah, sure. Um, I think it's important for students or those new to qualitative research to recognize that like any discipline, research and research methodologies have got their own unique sets of vocabulary. Um, so for example, in education, you know, depending on where you are in the, in, the, in the world, you might hear phrases like pedagogy, behaviorism, constructivism, uh, even you know, constructive alignment, formative and summative assessment. And the world of education can be quite perplexing. There's a lot of acronyms out there as well. But it's the same for research. So when people are entering the qualitative research domain, they will most likely come across phrases like research ethics, methodology, methods, data collection or data creation or data generation strategies uh, and tools, theoretical frameworks, data analysis. But in the case of this particular paper, it was more geared towards the philosophical route. So you might hear things like research paradigms, ontology, epistemology, methodology, axiology, and reflexivity. So there are a wide variety of terms um, that you can choose to grapple with. Um, and, I, and I do always suggest to students to at least scratch the surface with these terms, because sometimes I, it's like um, a film or a movie <laughs> that makes mm -hmm. sense at the end. Uh, sometimes people look back and think, ah, do you know what? Now the penny has dropped. I've realized how valuable it would have been to engage in, for example, reflexivity, uh, which I know we can talk about a bit yeah. later if you'd like. Yeah, I, I remember having a, a terms and definitions paper uh, in, in grad school in the first like theoretical class that I took. I, it took me so long to get through papers because there's so many terms that I didn't know. And then sometimes they're also like, for instance, I remember uh, looking up like healthism, right? A, a term that's like not in the dictionary and you look at it and you're like, wait, this isn't a term in the dictionary. This is something that somebody in some research article coined and then like started, people started using. Yep. And then, so there's even that. And, and I've, uh, to full disclosure, like I have Googled ontology and epistemology several times to try to figure out what they mean for my research. And sometimes understanding that is tough because it's a social psychology or a psychology example and you're trying to make bridge the conversation of like well how does what does this look like in after school programs with uh, underserved youth who are playing soccer you know like how yeah. does that transfer and so you explain a ton of words in there uh in the paper so i'm, I'm wondering if we can go through one at a time and uh maybe we can start at the at the top where you cover the word paradigm can you explain what that is Absolutely, yeah. And I, I would just like to insert a caveat that obviously these, these terms um, can be described in various ways. And there can, of course, be various interpretations. And I'm well aware that people perhaps listening to this podcast might have an alternative view. So I welcome that dialogue because myself, um, I, you know, I see myself as an ongoing learner. This is not something that is fixed. And I'm always uh, open to new uh, takes on these terms. But based on uh, the reading that I've done um, and how I've integrated these terms into my my own research, um, I would I would make the case that paradigms can be understood as, you know, a basic set of beliefs that tend to guide action. So research is, you know, is action based. We're doing something. And when we're doing things, um, it's often underpinned with, uh, a, you know, a set of uh, beliefs and or values. Um, paradigms can also be understood as a worldview, perhaps an individual's worldview that's underpinned by these beliefs and assumptions. 
and certainly research paradigms are an essential part of all research because they inform the selection and usage of appropriate methodologies and methods. And they're certainly embedded in all aspects of educational research because they, I guess they signal the researchers' philosophical orientations and methodological proclivities, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, so paradigms are, are also understood as, as a shared set of values and beliefs between research communities. So there may be, I think uh, Andrew Sparks described this in a, paper, in a, a chapter in 1992 about uh, invisible colleges and these groups of people who have shared research interests and as a result, over time, uh, you know, through um, shared dialogue and uh, advocacy for certain approaches, there will develop a, a paradigm, a, a sense of collegiate paradigm, whereby uh, there are accepted and rejected ways in which um, certain phenomena can be investigated. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think par- the, the paradigm for me is an umbrella term. It's a, it's a broader term which um, encapsulates everything that comes after it. So we select particular uh, research paradigms. It's almost like a catch-all term to describe your orientations, worldviews, the kinds of knowledge that you deem to be important or valuable for your particular particular research agenda. So does this uh, explain why at conferences at the end of the night when people go out to their individual bars and restaurants after presenting, <laughs> you have the qualitative researchers that do ethnography end up having hanging out together and then you end up having the quantitative researchers who do like uh, linear models and, and design and structural equational modeling, they end up like hanging out with e- each other and there is some overlap, but I have tended to see that depending on what type of methodology you use, those are the people you end up kind of hanging out with um, because it's kind yeah. of, you understand um, the format, like the, the common language is there and you think about things in a similar way. Absolutely. And um, I, ha- I guess I have to suggest here, that at least from my perspective, that there's, that there isn't a statement that I'm making about one approach or one paradigm being superior over another, it's more about the the appropriateness of that particular worldview uh, that informs your research. So it largely depends, or entirely depends, on uh, the nature of uh, understanding that you're trying to, to to get at. So yes, you may select more quantitative, positivist approaches, which we could discuss a bit later if you like. But um, that would depend on what it is you're trying to find out. And you're absolutely right. This has led to. I wouldn't say rival camps, but there are uh, there are instances where one paradigm has been undermined by the other. For example, the the positivist quantitative paradigm, those who advocate for that, might suggest that the qualitative interpretive paradigm is less robust, less valid, and so on. Whereas uh, the interpretive qualitative paradigm or those who advocate for that might suggest that the the quantitative research doesn't reveal the full story you know you might have statistics and so on but there are always deeper stories behind those numbers that the, the qualitative interpretivist researchers are really keen to dig down and understand yeah um, and so you're are... absolutely right there are there are different views yeah. yeah and these are the paradigm wars that we read about in grad school and okay so <laughs> yeah. uh so paradigm is kind of the umbrella term and you mentioned beliefs and philosophies earlier can you expand on how these terms paradigm beliefs and philosophy connect to each other absolutely yeah i'll, I'll certainly unpack them a little bit more and, and do my best to do that um i'll start with the word philosophy which um the etymology of philosophy is the love of wisdom or in the research context it might be the pursuit of wisdom and I think philosophy could be understood as a or an activity that we undertake when we're seeking to understand ourselves the world in which we live and our relationships to the world and to each other so when we're engaged in those kinds of activities you could argue that we're philosophizing 
You know, we're trying to understand more about ourselves, the world, our relationships, and so on. Uh, in some cases, you know, philosophy can be described as an approach uh, to something. You know, we talk about teaching philosophies, for example, um, or a theory or attitude that acts as a guiding principle for behavior. So, you know, some people might have a guiding principle that is to do no harm, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and this obviously permeates research ethics as well. So in his, in his book, um, Philosophy and Human Movement, I'm not sure if you're familiar with David Best's work. Um, it was published in 1978. Um, this was a really useful book for me in the context of physical education um, because he argued that um, philosophy can add a significant value to the study of human movement and physical education by quote subjecting to logical scrutiny some of the statements made about the activities concerned and so philosophy this love of wisdom this pursuit of wisdom is not necessarily taking things for granted and and you know uh making the familiar seem strange and asking deeper questions and in the paper i, I mentioned susan langer's work who published a book called feeling and form Again, this was in 1953, this is quite dated, but she described philosophy as a fabric of ideas. And I quite like this idea of the warp and the weft and this fabric of ideas leading to actions, behaviors, values, and beliefs. Um, and I think research paradigms can be understood in these terms because they refer to sets of ideas, beliefs, or worldviews that, as I said before, underpin the assumptions, principles, and strategies of a research community. So I think philosophy overlaps closely with, with research paradigms, but in a nutshell, it's the pursuit and, and, and the love of wisdom. The, the second word, beliefs, um, these are a little bit more subjective. People have very different beliefs, but I think the crucial distinction between, um, well, the, the, the crucial um, point to make about beliefs is that they are subjective attitudes, or propositions that individuals or of course groups will make about a certain state of affairs but the real key important point about beliefs is that they're not necessarily based on evidence mm. so people can act in the world based on their beliefs and, and their convictions that they are acting in a way that is for example good but um but beliefs are not necessarily underpinned by robust evidence so we can make you know, decisions um, on a daily basis based on a belief that's not necessarily true. Yeah. Um, so it's not necessarily based on firm evidence. I think the term belief links quite clearly to, to religion. When people talk of religion, they speak of faith, you know, uh, but, but equally importantly, beliefs are guides to action as well. So they do underpin people's behaviors. So in the context of research, um, the the researcher or the student will invariably enter the research process with their own lived histories and experiences values and beliefs which have no doubt shaped some some pre-existing ideas about what they're researching and i think that's why the term beliefs is important because we'll we'll, we'll perhaps get to uh reflexivity a bit later but um, we're not entering the research process as empty vessels. We've already got ideas about, for example, health or physical education. Yeah, and and it would be... Oh, and, and, yeah, sorry. No, go ahead. Um, sorry, you, you, did, you did mention the word, you know, paradigm. I know we've briefly discussed that, but um, in terms of how, I guess, how they overlap, you know, a paradigm is a standard perspective, set of ideas, a way of looking at something um, I think a crucial um, point of reflection for students and new researchers is this notion of um, methodological congruence. So are your actions in the research field congruent with those values and beliefs? Is there a disconnect uh, and so on? So I think that's also, you know, worth considering. We, we brief, just the last point on this, we briefly mentioned um, you know, the, the interpretivist, positivist uh, paradigms, if you will, that, that have got their own traditions and um, beliefs. There are, of course, other paradigms, you know, uh, critical paradigm, pragmatism, and so on, which this paper doesn't delve into. This is 
tend this paper specifically focus on the interpretivist um, paradigm. But I think the paradigm is an overarching, almost invisible cloak that you wear throughout the whole research process. And I think, as we'll perhaps discuss later, it's important to just check back and and just check that the you know the, the direction of your study and what what you're doing in the research is it congruent with those initial first principles that you've laid out at the beginning. I'm not sure that really answers your question clearly, Risto, in terms of how they overlap, but they're they're all you know embedded features mm-hmm. or certainly points of reflection that students should grapple with before formulating a perhaps a research question. Yeah. So it's kind of like if you have a belief system, let's say you grew up in in the Christian church and you study Christianity in physical education and sport, you would have a different belief system based on looking at that versus if you grew up uh, going to, uh, or you grew up as a Hasidic uh, Jew, right? And you, you then studied Christianity in physical education and sport. There are different belief systems that then not cloud your judgment, but definitely those belief systems that are not necessarily rooted in like a peer-reviewed literature or something like that. So, absolutely. And one of the um, uh, more recent emphasis, uh, or, or, or a point that qualitative researchers have been more have recently been encouraged to reflect on, is the degree to which these pre-existing values, beliefs, experiences have shaped every decision you make from the specific wording of the question to how you go about creating new knowledge, the the, the kinds of questions you ask uh, and so on. So there is a a call and a growing recognition of the importance to actually recognize our position in relation to the research. Yeah. And so now on to the reviewer two question. Uh, asking about ontology okay. and epistemology. So, um, can you explain what ontology is? Sure, I'll, I'll do my best with a couple of perhaps examples. Um, so, broadly speaking, ontology is the study of being and the study of reality. Um, it's got its roots in um, ancient Greek terms, onto, which relates to being or that which is and logia, logical discourse or study, hence ontology. So ontology is therefore concerned with understanding the nature of reality, what is real, logical discussions about these areas. Uh, It's generally concerned with concrete entities and abstract entities. So, you know, what is physical reality, metaphysics and so on? What is, what, what are abstract entities? So, Some ontological questions might be, what is it to be? What is it to exist? What is reality? And more recently with the, you know, the development of artificial intelligence and virtual reality, we are in the midst of a um, rapidly evolving ontological discussion about what reality is at the moment. More questions might be, you know, what is consciousness? Are my experiences real? Is there a God? Are there many gods and so on? And these these are ontological questions. How to get to an answer about that is more of an epistemological issue. But sticking with ontology, broadly speaking, there are two predominant worldviews, and these are realism and relativism. So realism or realists who adopt this position argue that there is one single knowable and objective reality that exists and that reality is independent of an individual's knowledge. So reality is there with or without you, with or without your interpretation of it. So from this perspective, reality is sort of, it's it's something that's out there irrespective of your experience. And it generally aligns with positivism. And a crucial point to understand positivism or the realist perspective is that it is, it, it's claimed to be a value-free approach to study. What that means is there is a detachment between the researcher and what is being researched. Uh, you know, Goober in the 90s, I think it might have been even the late 80s, described this as, you know, a researcher looking through one-way glass 
observing nature as she does her thing. Mm -hmm. And so it's linked with deductive reasoning where you would, you know, test the hypothesis, um, uh, carry out experiments and check whether the predictions were accurate and so on. And the crucial thing here is that it's, it's claimed to be a value free exercise. So the researcher, the individual, irrespective of their life story, their biography, what we talked about there, perhaps the, the Christian upbringing, for example, you know, all of that is somehow detached from the research process. Now, there are, of course, debates as to whether or not that is ever possible. Mm -hmm. Okay, but the idea of the realist position is that you're adopting a value-free stance and you're engaging in deductive reasoning. At the opposite end of the continuum, another ontological perspective is known as relativism. And if you're adopting this position, you would probably be you know, described as a relativist. And these people argue that individuals' perceptions of reality always differ based on their personal lived experiences of the world. So from this ontological perspective, individuals each experience the world differently and thus as a result multiple realities are believed to exist so there is not one single objective reality but based on our own individual lived experience our reality my reality is unique and different to yours and this means that reality is almost context bound so, for example, someone, if we just take England, for example, somebody from uh, a rural, uh, wealthy background in a, a privately educated school, their reality of physical education might completely contradict uh, a child from a low-income family in a socially deprived area. So, in terms of reality, the, the, the relativist would argue that there is no one single reality there. There are two different realities based on their experiences of physical education. So this relativist position aligns with the qualitative research, the interpretivist paradigm, because it's a value-laden approach to study. Okay, so the researchers adopting this viewpoint acknowledge that they have their own lived histories, they have their own biographies, and they inform every decision that they make. For example, when you're interviewing a, a teacher, for example, about their lived experience, you are interpreting what they mean when they respond to you. It's no longer just a statistical piece of information. It's something that you as a researcher need to decode, interpret and present. So as a result, from this perspective, new understandings um, and theory is socially derived and it's developed from the ground up, if you will. And this is opposite to deductive reasoning this is known as inductive reasoning so we start by asking questions and we develop theory from the ground up I, I think that's the best way to summarize those two competing ontological worldviews but of course you know they have significant implications to the types of uh, studies that you would engage in the, the, the fundamental questions that you ask for example how many versus what is it like to be? <laughs> you know, these are two fundamentally different questions that require different worldviews and paradigms. Yeah, and I like the, you you have this quote uh, about Aristotle that said, fires burn in both Hellas yeah. and Persia, but men's ideas of right and wrong vary from place to place. And it was it was such a good example, especially in the world we live in now, that you see that there are wars in different countries. Both sides think they are right, and they Correct. see the world yep. in different ways. And they are, but the but the fact is that there are fires in both sides of that area, and there's still issues like the destruction is happening all over the place. But different people think different things we all live in the same world and that's why you know you know you try to remind like a, a four-year-old that the world does not revolve around them but sometimes they sure. think that it does and that's a different viewpoint and so all of these are based on their experiences and whether you know what you grew up learning right who who taught you in school like what did you learn and 
in eighth grade um, social studies or history class about who is right and who is wrong on this side of the issue. Like I grew up mm -hmm. in, in Finland that is, you know, a really close border town to Russia. I have learned yeah. history in a, in a way and it was about World War II and it was about this. And, you know, as, as I get older and now finish researchers and Finnish historians are are talking about uh, the way that World War II ended. They have a different viewpoint now when they analyze it because for a long time you weren't allowed to talk about it. Like it wasn't, there was so much like, um, you know, coverage of like the Soviet Union had this huge shadow over Finland and Finnish people were kind of tiptoeing around and and but now when you hear about the true analysis of some like person that does a dissertation and analyzes it from a different viewpoint you're like oh that's a different way to look at it and i don't know if it's more true or less true than the way i was taught or my parents were taught i think that's a really good example of of aristotle's quote there and how um you can uh, bring that wisdom into your daily life and thinking about these things. I think for the research students, grappling with realism and relativism in the research context, I think that quote can be really useful because it acknowledges that, yes, fires can burn in two separate places simultaneously, and that can be happening with or without your interpretation of it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that, 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 that suggests that the, the realist position is, of course, you know, um, a, a, a completely legitimate position to adopt because, you know, that is happening elsewhere with or without us. But simultaneously, people can disagree about certain concepts, for example, right and wrong, or the best way to conduct research, or the best way to teach physical education, for example. So the fact that these um, different ontological positions can exist simultaneously, I think serves to remind the researcher that it is not about selecting the right or wrong paradigm, it's about selecting the most appropriate paradigm to suit your particular research interests. So I, I do think that statement uh, from Aristotle captures that quite well. Um, so, so really, it's about uh, adopting the most fit-for-purpose perspective and guiding philosophy based on your research interests. Yeah. So we can put a bow on ontology. Now let's unwrap epistemology, which is the other other big term. So what is what is epistemology? Sure thing. Yeah. So um, epistemology is often, um, you know. Uh, shackled together with ontology in terms of academic discourse about research methods, and they are closely aligned. But epistemology is a bit dis different because it's concerned with the study of knowledge and of justified beliefs. So whereas ontology is focused on reality and existence, epistemology is focused on the study of knowledge and justified beliefs. So um, the etymology of epistemology, again, derives from Greek terms epistem, which means knowledge, and logia, meaning, again, logical discourse. So epistemology refers to the study, theory, and justification of knowledge. It's a way, I think um, Crotty in the 90s put it quite well, that it's a way of understanding and explaining how I know what I know. So when you are making a claim to knowledge or a claim that you know something, an epistemological question would be, on what basis are you making that claim? So it's certainly uh, because research and those who conduct research are in the business of uh, you know, creating knowledge, gaining new insights, and being part of a dialogue to uh, enhance our knowledge and understanding of social phenomena, for example. Epistemology is a crucial aspect of all research paradigms because it's centered on the relationship between you, the knower, and what there is to be known. Um, so in, in, in research, 
um, epistemology deals with the processes by which something can become can come to be known and on what basis truth or reality can be can be claimed okay so um, one thing I often talk to my students about um, is you know a, a couple of different epistemological positions and so you know like, like um, ontology you you might adopt a, a, a realist or a relativist position in line with whichever position you adopt for your study you will need to grapple with epistemology as a concept but then also select the most appropriate epistemological position for your study so for example objectivism which is our first epistemological position is related to the realist ontological assumption because it suggests that reality is objective and that reality exists independent of your conscious thought so an objectivist researcher would assume that both the researcher and the researched are independent of one another and don't influence each other in any way so that would be a more quantitative positivist alignment the second epistemological position that i share with my students is the constructivist epistemology um, and this is more closely aligned with a relativist ontological worldview and claims that meaning is constructed by the individual based on their interactions with the world so knowledge is constructed through dialogue with others and interactions and interrelations with others so instead of the researcher and the researched being separated or distinct they they interact and influence each other so different meanings can be assigned to you know different individuals in the same scenario you might be observing a physical education lesson or you might be speaking to some pupils about their experiences of PE or a particular lesson and two different pupils from the same class have completely contradictory experiences of that one same lesson and you know through that dialogue you, you, you've developed meaning and understanding through communication with the participants if you will and the third one is subjectivism and this goes a little bit further this, this is the, the the opposite end of the continuum to objectivism so subjectivism is also aligned with the relativist ontology but it assumes that meaning doesn't arise from interaction between the researched and the researcher but meaning is imposed on the researched or the object by the researcher so you know earlier Risto, we talked about the, the the baggage and the the lived experience that people bring with them you know to, to any field but well if you are a researcher and you go into the field uh, a subjectivist epistemology would suggest that you are actually imposing your values on their on the the, the researched experiences so there are three different um epistemological positions that i share with my students to get them to consider okay well which one aligns with you and which one of these aligns with your particular research um, question I, I don't know how much detail you'd like to go into with regards to you know epistemology because obviously this is something that you know we could talk about you know for, for, for a lot longer um, because there are obviously lots of academics spending their careers focusing on epistemology and justified belief and so on um, but is, I mean, is there anything I, I can yeah, elaborate so, on there? So if, examples I, or? if I were to say, um, like if I take an objectivist view, I could say um, would be appropriate for a person who wants to find out the anthropometrics of a bunch of different people from different countries. They want to know who the tallest human beings are per like country. And it's just going out to a bunch of different rural villages all around like Asia and Mongolia and Serbia and England and measuring how tall people are, right? Yes. There's not much going Absolutely. on there. It, it's just like a fact. There's a measurement. You are two meters tall. You are six feet, three inches. You are whatever. And then there's no real like, there. you're looking for that one truth. Right. That's an objective Absolutely. measurement. There's no theory behind it in the sense and they can publish a paper and saying um, people from Holland are the tallest people in the, in the world or whatever. Then constructivist 
if I'm, let's say I'm looking at the experiences of uh, urban students in physical education, now there's a little bit of a difference because if I'm an urban student who gets plopped into New York City public schools, but I'm actually from Ghana and I immigrated to New York City three months ago, my experience of urban physical education is different than the Puerto Rican kid who grew up in New York City and is understands what New York City is and that school is. So there, that'd be more like that relativist, you are you know understanding that there's different opinions and then subjective, subjectivist. Risto, yeah. before we move on to the subjective, yeah, that, you're absolutely right. That's a, a really nice way of framing it. But I think um, something that's worth recognizing in the constructivist epistemological position is to be transparent as a researcher that, that, that meaning and knowledge is being co-created through dialogue with these research participants because the constructivist epistemology uh, suggests that meaning is made through dialogue and as a result you as a researcher almost have an obligation to recognize that you are interpreting these children's experiences for the purpose of perhaps producing a report or a thesis or a, a dissertation and that as a result of that interpretation you are recognizing that you are part of this knowledge creation as well. Mm -hmm. So there's not a detachment between yourself and the participants. While clearly the lived experiences are, are different, uh, the, the dialogue and shared meaning making is crucial for that epistemological position. Sorry to cut you off. No, there. no. So then I guess the subjectivist, I'm going to take a guess at this because I'm not uh, entirely sure the difference from constructivist to subjectivist, but would be sure. um, I'm having my values as a part of this. So it could be like an action research study where I'm kind of doing an intervention using, let's say, the activist approach, and I'm trying to get students to do something that I am that I'm studying at the same time. So I'm bringing some knowledge. Yes, there's some co-creation, and there's still involved with the relativist idea but I'm working on, I'm more imposing my plan on yeah. the situation that's happening. I'm not sitting back interviewing people and then interpreting what they're, what they're saying. I'm like actually doing stuff, right? Yes, and you're, rec you're recognizing that lived experience that you've had as a researcher. And I guess, I, I'm not sure if it's too, um, um, the, the word might be too heavy here, but it's almost like uh, you are recognizing that you are projecting. You are, as a researcher, you are also projecting meaning based on your lived experience. Now, this paper that we're discussing today was focused on the interpretive paradigm. The subjectivist epistemology, the subjective epistemology, would certainly align well with the critical paradigm, which is a, a, an approach to research whereby the researcher starts from the point whereby they believe or uh, predict or have a, a, a grasp on an injustice, you know, a particular issue of social justice, for example, and they are starting from the point that there is an inequality to be addressed. Mm -hmm. So as a result, the researcher in that instance w is making transparent their views you know, uh, in, in terms of trying to instigate a cultural change, perhaps. All right, so we talked about paradigm, ontology, and epistemology separately. Um, and I guess when it gets tricky for me is when I'm trying to use these words to define my positionality in research. I feel like, um, you know, if we wrote down what we did now, we would be at 7,000 words, and then I haven't even started to talk about what my research paper was about. Um, so can you explain the differences between the terms? Maybe give us an example of, like if you're writing a paper, how do you define your own epistemology or ontology that also fits in a method section and not an appendix to a dissertation that you can kind of have unlimited uh, space to write about. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I think uh, I'll get to my, my, I guess, my own paradigm and how I've done that in a moment. But very briefly, you mentioned the word positionality. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's an important term to grapple with as well. So positionality relates to your overall position in relation to the research. For example, you know, who you are, what the research means to you, whether you are an insider to that research community under study or whether you are an outsider, you know, I, I, you know, are you conducting research from within a community that you belong to or are you visiting? And so on. So like and also, an, who decides? So, like an uh, a person who studies indigenous uh, cultures, let's say you want to go in and study what indigenous sports are, but you are a white person from Europe who comes in and studies that. It's a different. You're an outsider, versus if you are an indigenous scholar who is embedded in the community and then studies, you're an, an insider in that in that specific community. Absolutely, and, and this is what I believe it's uh, Grattan and Jones in 2010 um, described as uh, ethnographic visiting or ethnographic tourism. So, mm -hmm. it, you know, you might not necessarily be an insider in that community, but your insights and experiences can still be, of course, of, of, of value. Yeah. But yeah, so one of the aspects of positionality is the degree to which you are an insider or an outsider and also consideration of, well, who decides this? Are you self-labeling as an insider or an outsider? And is that insider-outsider continuum uh, all on your terms or is it decided mm -hmm. by external influence and so on? Uh, it also considers whether or not your research is overt or covert. You know, are you being completely transparent with your participants, which is a, a, an ethical obligation I give to my students. I, Certainly at undergraduate and master's level, I don't encourage students to, to be doing covert research where they're spying on folks. Yeah. Um, but the degree to which your study is overt or covert is part of your positionality. And, you know, on the overt covert continuum, the, you know, I've also written about this in my own thesis, having developed what I termed a model of re reflexive positionality, is that, you know, whether or not you're overt or covert is not always up to you and, and, and you know it can unfold in the moment you know that uh, i forget the author now i forget the citation but there, there was a really interesting paper on um even when you're you have a commitment to being overt in your research there are always going to be some elements of covert practice and that's a really interesting you know dichotomy that i grappled with in my own study um, so, yeah, I'm more than happy to d talk about that model at another time, Risto, but um, this model was based on a Cartesian coordinate system and not to, you know, revert to a positivist approach. It was more of a conceptual awareness that um, different features of reflexivity, which we could talk about later, uh, feature in the research. So in my case, it was, you know, recognizing at times when I felt like an insider or an outsider. Uh, at times did I engage in covert or very overt research and the, the third axis I was using a wider sociological theory from Goffman um, known as the front stage backstage persona and how often was I revealing my true values to the participants and at what points did I hold back mm -hmm. so these things can be incredibly complex in terms of positionality but it's about recognizing um, you know how you relate to your research in those kinds of ways in terms of my paradigm, it doesn't need to be, you know, an overly extended uh, 7,000 word, you know, um, uh, bunch of paragraphs in an academic paper. But to date, my research has been entirely grounded in the interpretivist paradigm. Mm -hmm. So this is generally due to my research interests and what I've been generally interested in finding out. For example, pupil voice research, the role of literacy for learning in physical education socialization experiences, um, acculturation, professional socialization, organizational socialization, and more recently with colleagues at UCLan, uh, the micro-political dynamics of teachers and leaders' lives in schools. These kinds of research areas are more suited to the interpretivist paradigm. Um, so I generally adopt a relativist ontology where I recognize that you know, reality from one teacher or one school leader to the next can look quite different. And I also adopt a constructivist epistemology, recognizing that my mere presence in the conversation or the interview 
is going to have an impact on the response in some way, shape or form, and that my presence in dialogue is what is creating that new knowledge and new meaning. Okay. All right. Good. Um... But for, what, for what it's worth, Risto, for those listening, if they wanted to read the paper we're talking about, there are avenues of curiosity at each stage. So there are examples of when students have engaged with these different terminologies, such as paradigm, you know, epistemology, ontology, in their own research. So you can actually go to uh, resources that are open access. You can have a look at how previous students have grappled with these terms, and it might inspire some students to think, ah, yeah, that makes sense now. Yeah. Maybe I can have a go at this. Yeah, and they're, they're well done, and they, they're like little boxes after each section to kind of dive sure, deeper yeah. into. Um, so let's go, uh, we have a couple more here. So what is methodology? And may, maybe, I'll, sure, I'll, yeah. maybe I'll ask here too, a lot of people use methodology and methods uh, as the same word. So is that, um, can you speak on that as well? Absolutely, yeah. So a research methodology, I mean, you know, the ology is the study of. So psychology, sociology, they have terms, you know, the ology is about the study of. So a methodology uh, is the study or the, the debates about uh, methods. Um, so a methodology is a rationale for the research approach or the theoretical lens through which the analysis occurs. Um, your methodology helps you to establish your reasons for selecting and rejecting certain fieldwork strategies and to collect certain types of data. So your methodology sits above your methods. Okay, so um, you know methodology essentially is a philosophical underpinnings of your position, which guides your selection of methods and data collection strategy. So you might argue that a methodology be uh, qualitative, underpinned by you know a relativist uh, ontology, a constructivist epistemology, and as a result, you're doing an interpretivist qualitative study. The methods underneath that, you, you can start to make uh, appropriate selections on whether you're doing you know drawing methodologies, case study, ethno um, ethnography, um, and then you can look a bit deeper into the tools that you might use, interviews. Survey, you know, social surveys, observations, uh, and, and so on. So the methods are the more granular mm -hmm. uh, aspect of this. Uh, you know, it could be compared to the data collection tools that you use to go out and gather and co collect and create that that new that new knowledge. Okay. So, so I, I think yeah, methodology is the amalgamation of the philosophical orientations of the researcher and the methods of data collection. And again, I'll emphasize from uh, Richards and Morse in a lovely book um, called Qualitative Inquiry. Uh, they, they they emphasize the importance of what they call methodological congruence. Mm -hmm. So having having debated and justified your you know uh, paradigm, are your data collection strategies aligned with that paradigm? So if I'm for, for uh, an example of misalignment would be to select a relativist ontology a constructivist uh, epistemology, a qualitative methodology, and then do a survey that asks only closed questions relating to how many times, mm -hmm. how tall, how short, because that would not be aligned with the um, interpretive paradigm. So at every stage of the research, you know, Richards and Morse advisors, and I advise my students to just look back and check that we're on course, check that what we're doing is aligned with our statements earlier on in the project. So it's doing social justice work through a positivist viewpoint, through quantitative measures where those kind of don't align, like you are, you're looking for social yeah. injustice, but you're not leaving any room for interpretation of lived experiences and how that, how that works. Cool. Okay. Sure. So there's two two more terms that you cover that I think are really important, which is axiology and reflexivity. Um, so what what is axiology? Sure. Again, so axiology derives from two Greek words: axios, meaning worthy, and logos, meaning reason and theory. So again, axiology 
essentially refers to the philosophical study of values and also ethics. So the idea that research is value laden, you know, it's not a new phenomenon that we, we, we know that. And even in 1985, Lincoln and Goober acknowledged that researchers values are an important consideration because they offer a point of departure from the positivist methodologies in that by identifying the research problem, choosing theoretical frameworks, deciding on which data collection strategies to use. As a result of all that, researchers are de facto engaging in value-laden activities because they're making decisions based on their values. But it wasn't until more recently um, that, you know, authors of, uh, you know, Lincoln, uh, Lindham and Guber have acknowledged that axiology should be viewed as a part of the basic foundational philosophical dimensions of a paradigm because it enables researchers to see the embeddedness of ethics within, not external to, their paradigms. So axiology is fundamentally concerned with our values, which is an inescapable reality that all researchers face. You know, we all value certain things. We might have a hierarchy of values, if you will. And this has a direct impact upon what we research as well as how we go about it and how we present it. So axiology is encouraging us to recognize that you know, what we do depends on what we value. What we see depends on where we stand. So um, it, it's just a reminder really that we, we should become more transparent as researchers about what we value. For example, the motivations for the study. What's the, not just the methodological rationale, but why are you doing this study? For example, I've had uh, students completing dissertations on um, uh, foster care. I'm not sure if that is the mm -hmm. same terminology yeah. in the States yet. Yeah. So, yeah. so uh, you know, the, the, the challenges and opportunities of facilitating physical activity for children in foster care, you know, and why was this so valuable to the student? Why did the student deem that to be valuable? Well, it's because they've been through that experience yeah. themselves. Yeah. And so I think being transparent about what you value in research is certainly useful. You can put it to creative use in the qualitative domain. Yeah. And this kind of probably bridges into reflexivity. So can you talk about sure, what yeah. reflexivity is? Yes. So um, it's described, it's been described as the, the, the reflexive turn in qualitative research. It's a movement in qualitative research whereby researchers are becoming increasingly encouraged to provide sincere transparency about their values, their research orientations, their experiences in the field in order to ascertain the degree to which their presence and their attitudes have impacted upon the research process from start to finish. So yeah, reflexivity is about um, a deliberate attempt to recognize the influence that you have not only on um, the participants that you're observing speaking with and so on but also the influence that you have on the the, the influence that your beliefs values have on the, the shaping of the entire research process so it's a deliberate uh, process of introspection and one example of how i've done that in my own phd thesis is to have regular checkpoints, if you will, throughout the thesis, where I've inserted a paragraph or two named reflexive note, whereby I've recognized something that's coming out of the data or that I'm, you know, collaborating to develop new insights that, that, that where I've had an impact on it. You know, I might have led the, the, if I was conducting an interview, it might have been a natural conversation, but I have led the discussion a little bit too much, mm -hmm. or I've asked uh, leading questions that, that have inevitably changed the direction of the conversation. And that reflexivity is me reflecting on and being transparent about how that data has arisen. Yeah. So how is how is re reflexivity different than a positionality statement, or is it the same? Sure. So, posi so positionality, as we discussed earlier, is about recognizing how your presence might influence the environment. So, for example, I caught a reflection of myself. I'm six foot six, uh, and I was observing a PE lesson uh, in, a, in a room that had mirrors. It was a dance studio. And it, I had this awakening, this moment where I realized 
yeah, I, I'm not a fly on the wall here, you know, and mm-hmm. I described it as being a six foot six fly on the wall, thinking that I'm not impacting on the environment, but just my presence was clearly affecting the, the students and the teacher because, well, we won't go into that, but just my presence was, was having an impact. Um, and positionality in terms of insider, outsider, overt and covert research. But positionality statements are what I'm seeing out of the literature that seems to be coming out of America, and, and I know that in the UK it's beginning to take hold, is this idea that at the beginning of research projects and papers, a positionality statement is being transparent about your characteristics. For example, as you said earlier, you know, white male, heterosexual, middle-class background, whatever it may be, maybe even religious affiliations and, and so on. So positionality statements are, to the best of my knowledge, Risto, they are designed to be transparent about you know, who you are, uh, because the, the reader of your work will then be able to interpret and decode your message uh, w- with an awareness of your uh, characteristics. Yeah, and it's also acknowledging you know who you are. You know, it's not sure, just absolutely. to, yes, you, you write it down, but as you write that down, you acknowledge that, yes, being a heterosexual male studying the experiences of LGBTQ youth, I acknowledge yeah. that I know that I'm not a part of this community, yet I am studying the effects of physical education on LGBTQ youth, but I'm not a yeah. part of that community. So, um, all right. Absolutely. So I guess like in a very simple, brief way, like, can you kind of explain the main differences or overlap of methodology, axiology and reflexivity? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think in, in a nutshell, um, I would describe methodology as a conscious mix of philosophical worldviews, i.e. ontology, epistemology, axiology, reflexivity. So a conscious mix of those philosophical worldviews with the data collection methods adopted for a particular study. So it's a, it's, it's a conscious mix. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're being transparent about where they've come from. Axiology, I would suggest, is a deliberate recognition of our own values and how this informs both the decision to research a particular phenomenon. You know, as I said, the example from foster care previously, you know, this is a valuable issue to me but also recognizing how that can shape the direction of the research based on your, your own involvement. Reflexivity is a constant and deliberate self-evaluation in relation to your research, both in terms of the process that you go through and the product that you create at the end of it. So it's a, a constant and deliberate process, I guess, of introspection about who you are in relation to that particular study. And, and as I said earlier, Risto, uh, in the paper we've been discussing, there are um, examples of how students have engaged with those terms uh, in their own uh, work. So this paper that was published was always designed as a, an accessible inroad to invite students or those new to qualitative research to begin grappling with these terms. And, and you know, I hope it's been yeah. useful for that. No, it's it's been great. And I think hopefully this audio version and a conversation around it helps even further. Um, so as we kind of wrap this up, what, what do you think the next step for people wanting to engage in qualitative research? Maybe this is the first time they're thinking about it, they're doing a master's thesis, or they're looking at even using mixed methods and they have a really strong quantitative background, but they want to ask the qualitative questions like what what's your advice for new researchers moving forward sure it's it's funny when you ask that question about those transitioning perhaps from a positivist background to an interpretivist background um i was recently in a, a supervisory meeting where uh, a phd student was we, we, it was it was all said in jest but they come from a scientific background and they were described as a recovering scientist hmm. <laughs> and it is hard to break free of those shackles of you know validity and statistical power and so on um but for those entering the world of qualitative research i I would suggest two things um firstly don't be afraid to grapple with the terminology um as we said at the beginning of of this conversation you know it, it can be quite perplexing but 
ask ask your supervisors questions before you turn away and disengage from you know a particular word that sounds scary and unfamiliar just start to scratch the surface of it and ask questions of your supervisors and your tutors because they are there to to help you and guide you even just signpost and and, and point you in the direction of some relevant literature and again that's what this paper's for as an introduction so don't be afraid to grapple with the terms secondly this sounds a little bit abstract but there's definitely safety in following the path that's been laid before you in qualitative research uh you know, for example you know you know traditional structured interviewing for instance but one of the one of the, the it's a blessing and a curse with qualitative research because it can be complex, it can be complicated and take, take time. But one of the advantages of qualitative research is that it permits a, a, a wide range of methodological flexibilities. And so you should try and embrace that uncertainty and recognize that you know, being lost in that haze is part of the sense-making process. Uh, and it's what makes qualitative research so compelling and moving because it's about stories it's about lived experiences, um, and, I, and, I, and I think there's a lot of value in getting lost in that process because mm -hmm. you do find your way out of it, and you do find yourself at the other side of that process, having gone through you know lots of fascinating experiences with regards to methods and philosophy and meaning making, and it will make you a more competent social critique. So I, I know that wasn't a concise answer, Risto, but. Uh, don't be afraid to grapple with the terminology and embrace the flexibility that qualitative research permits. Yeah. Um, thank you, Andrew, for your time. Uh, I have a lot of notes uh, that I've been, I think this is the most notes I've ever had during a, uh, a podcast recording. And I, I really appreciate the way that you explain these. And I hope that this is a tool for people who are trying to figure out what these terms mean and or rethink about what they learned in grad school and how they may have changed as a, as a human being and how their position state uh, position changes and, and where they go. So um, appreciate the time. Thanks, thanks for coming on. Thank you, Risto. Thank you so much for inviting me. And I, I sincerely hope that this is the beginning of uh, you know uh, various dialogues that we might have in future. It's been a real pleasure joining you. Thank you. Yeah. And, uh, Everybody will uh, put the link to the article in the show notes. And as always, I want to thank Alba Rodriguez for her work in producing the podcast. And thanks for listening. If you're still listening, you're probably really into health and physical education. So I'm going to use this opportunity to pitch our master's program to you if you don't have your master's degree yet. Um, our 100% online master's degree program we offer at George Mason is affordable. You can do it while teaching, and it's high quality. Um, Mason was listed as one of the top 50 universities under 50 years old in the world. Our education department was ranked in the top 10 nationally for the online master's degree program in curriculum and instruction. The master's degree uh, revolves around your teaching. So you'll use assignments from the classes to immediately apply research and best practices to your classes. You'll be part of a tight-knit cohort of health and physical education professionals who are passionate about teaching. You're also going to get an opportunity to interact with students in other content areas. So if you're interested, you can email me, look me up on Twitter, or you can go on the hpewebsite.com under study with us and watch a video that I've made.